Hello and welcome. I'm Enza Kandanen, and this is Academia Experience, where we discuss topical academic phenomena in everyday language. Today, I'm in London to meet with Dave Cook, an anthropologist, a consultant, and a researcher at the University College London. Among other things, Dave will be sharing his perspective on why is it important to have a more precise definition of a digital normal and how authentication has a role. Uh, Dave, you have been observing and researching remote work and digital nomads for about eight years. So you're one of those researchers who witnessed the uh, development and the change in digital nomads and in digital nomadism as a phenomenon. So let uh, us remind uh, the audience uh, the definition who is, uh, what uh, do we mean on the digital nomads that we talk about digital nomad. So a uh, digital nomad is defined as a highly mobile professional who, uh, whose work is location independent. Uh, so they work while traveling and vice versa on a semi-permanent basis. And this is my definition of a digital nomad, which is broad enough to uh, include different types of uh, professionals as well as different traveling patterns. Uh, however, you recently um, created a more precise categories uh, of digital nomads. Uh, if I recall co correctly, these are five categories. So could you tell us a little bit more about those and how did you uh, come up with these five categories? Yes, um, thanks. Uh, first of all, um, let's just go back to the digital nomad definition. Um, I, I agree with your characterization, um, but one of the things that I wanted to do um, in the paper was be a little bit more specific. Um, and one of the definitions that um, we came up with um, in conversations with other researchers and also with uh, Steve King from NBO Partners, who are one of the people, um, he's one of the um, people that does surveys about digital nomadism, um, and they publish it quite widely, um, was to try and identify how often people move. Um, and in the definition, we say it's going to three different locations um, in a single year that isn't your own home or home base or a friend's or a family's um, home. I think a lot of remote workers in lockdowns were experimenting working in that way. Um, they wanted to um, you know, reconnect with their families, so they ended up experimenting working in other places. But I think digital nomadism is something quite distinct. It's something quite different. Um, if we look back to the early days, 2015, when I started my research, um, digital nomads tended to be traveling and working quite frequently um, but those patterns are now changing so we needed a baseline to differentiate between uh, a digital nomad and a remote worker um, you mentioned the five categories um, i'll just say what they are um, and then we can talk about those and delve a little bit more deeply into them um, the first is the free freelance digital nomad um, the freelance digital nomad is the the famous digital nomad, the freelancer, the stereotypical version um, that I mainly encountered in the early days of my research. Um, there's also the digital nomad business owner. Um, they're people actually running bi businesses, oftentimes with staff. They'll have business systems, but they're still moving from place to place. Um, then you have the salaried digital nomad. Now, they were less common before the pandemic, and they're becoming a much um, broader um, and um, quickly rising category um, at the moment. So it's really important that we start to talk about those. I did encounter some people that were doing that in my research before the pandemic, but they were very small in number. Um, and then there's the fourth category, which 
which is the aspiring digital nomad. Um, and aspiring digital nomads are people that are maybe trying to set up a business or they're trying to freelance while they're working, but they haven't actually turned um, it into a reality. They're not actually generating revenue yet. And the reason why I included that was because in the early days of my research, I met so many of them um, um, when I encountered them in places like Thailand and Chiang Mai, also in Bali. Um, and then the fifth and the last category is a category called armchair digital nomads. Um, and that's a category that Steve King from NBO came up with. He used the term first of all. Um, and they estimated that there were 72 million or potentially 72 million um, digital um, um, armchair digital nomads um, in the US alone. And what he meant by that is it's people that are considering experimenting with the lifestyle in the next two to three years. And um, one of the things that he said is it's very much a spectator sport. But I think when you're looking at numbers like 72 million, even if like 5% or 3% or 1% start to convert, that's going to have an impact um, on the world of work and it's going to have an impact on the locations that digital nomads are traveling to. I see. So if I understand correctly, these are not very uh, discrete categories. So you can move from armchair to freelancer or from freelancer back to aspiring if you um, fail, let's say, or from aspiring to business owner or even salary, right? So there is flexibility um, yeah. between those categories. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, in the social sciences, these categories are always things that we can move um, in between. I mean, if you look at the um, freelance digital nomad and the digital nomad business owner. Some freelancers may think of themselves as um, being businesses. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of digital nomads that I encounter in my research think of themselves as being entrepreneurial, which is why I didn't use that term. But the um, boundary between digital nomad freelancers and digital nomad business owners is quite porous. Um, and people might imagine themselves to be in a different category. But broadly speaking, I think it's important to identify that digital nomad business owners, they may have you know, staff, they may have people that they're managing, um, they may have business systems um, and, and to look after. And one of the really interesting things that I noticed in my research that differentiates digital nomad business owners from digital nomad freelancers is that it's much more difficult for them to um, up six and move to another location because it has more of an impact. They have to really, really monitor their availability um, much more than the average freelancer, although I'm generalizing there a little bit. I see. I also find it very interesting, the point of three locations per year. So if it's two, uh, then somebody is excluded from the category. Like, is it something that Stephen King came up, came up in this report and uh, something that you two discussed or? Yeah, uh, I can tell you how I came up with that figure. I interviewed Steve King um, a couple of times um, before I published the paper and they said that in their sampling, they said that it was three locations um, in a year. Um, when I did a review of all of the other research um, that occurred, um, I needed a baseline. So, um, three to five was the number that tended to crop up um, in pre-pandemic um, studies. And I think it's really important to say that this um, number of three is you know, very much, it, it, it's, it's not an arbitrary number because it comes from 
um, research and deans that have, have arisen in research, but it's a basic minimum. Um, so, um, you know, digital nomads really need to be nomadic in some kind of way, otherwise we're just talking about remote work. Um, but... Um, so it comes up with what you observed in the field. That's, I think, an important clarification here, that it's not something that you just said, oh, but it's also coming that uh, nomads uh, say themselves, uh, they travel in patterns and travel in intensity, I would say. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting uh, before the pandemic, and I think this is still happening now, we're having all of these conversations about digital nomad um, visas, um, but they're still a relatively new phenomenon. And most of the of nomads that I encountered in my research were traveling on tourist visas, particularly the freelance digital nomads. And what that means is if you go to Thailand um, or if you went to Thailand before the pandemic, um, if you were from um, most Western countries, you could get a visa on arrival for one month and then you'd have to go back to the border. So that was one of the things that was driving people's mobility um, because most people weren't you know, um, bothering to uh, apply for more complex visas. Um, and, um, you know, that was one of the things that differentiated some of the digital nomad business owners. They would spend time researching um, so that they didn't have to move so often. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why that distinction and that those categories need to be separate. What I also find interesting in your research that you rely large, largely on self-identification when you uh, define digital nomads. So uh, this is uh, something different from other researchers. And uh, here is my question, how uh, well somebody can actually place himself or herself in a specific category that uh, he or she is a digital nomad or somebody, or oh, I'm not yet uh, quite a digital nomad. And um, this question is related to some uh, experience that I had in the field uh, when I was uh, interviewing a co-living and co-working space owner in Spain. She said that uh, she had no idea the term existed, um, the term digital nomad existed. So she would call everyone a remote worker. So how this self-identification works uh, in your case, how uh, well your respondents can actually say who they are. That's a really fascinating question. I think we could spend quite a lot of time um, and discussing that. I think as social scientists, as anthropologists, sociologists in particular, we can become quite obsessed with categories. Um, um, you know, in the field of tourism, um, there's a lot of research that the people go around thinking themselves or calling themselves um, tourists. And a lot of times people try to kind of like disavow the term uh, tourist that can be quite divisive. I think the same is true of the term digital nomad. It can be an as aspir aspirational, um, but it can also be a pejorative term. Um, when I first started on this research and project, one of the first things that I did was I went to a digital nomad conference in Bangkok in 2016. Um, and the reason why I went was I wanted to find out what a digital nomad was. Um, that's what I was calling my research projects, but I thought I better go and find out. And when the conference organizers knew that there was a, a social scientist um, at the conference, um, everybody started asking me, what is a digital nomad? And these were people that were going to a conference that they weren't quite sure. Um, so at that point, I decided I better work out what it is um, and um, you know, try and identify what the term means um, because it was very, very vague. 
um, and people were relating to it in different ways. I mean, one of the things that I will say is when people are first starting out on the lifestyle, they can get very excited and they, they might use the term in a positive way and then they might reject it later on down the line as being a little bit stale, um, something that they don't want to identify with. So all of these things change um, over time. You know, in a world where people were sometimes seeing themselves as a digital nomad and sometimes not seeing themselves as a digital nomad, um, we just had to ask people what they thought that they were. Um, so um, that's why I started to use you know, the term digital nomad. Um, when I was conducting my early research, uh, the, the, I framed my field site by going into co-working spaces um, and having encounters uh, and doing interviews with people that I met in those locations. Um, and when we got into discussions about, you know, are you a digital nomad? Most people kind of use the term in the same way as you would use the word tourist. It's something that I sometimes am. Um, and um, what I decided to do was to ask these people that were sometimes thinking of themselves as digital nomads um, to plot themselves um, on a graph which had work as a, um, a vertical axis. So you've got work focused at the top um, and you've got non-work or leisure focused at the bottom. Um, and then there's a horizontal axis and on the left it's highly mobile and on the right it's sedentary or, or not moving. When I was speaking to people, uh, I gave people this um, blank piece of paper with the two axes on and asked people to pinpoint where they, you know, imagine themselves. Um, and most digital nomads put themselves in the top left and hand of the quadrant. Um, there was sometimes some really interesting discussion about how work-focused they were. Um, so sometimes people would put themselves at the top as being very work-focused, but then saying, well, actually, the reason why I've traveled to Thailand and to Chiang Mai is to experience more leisure, and that they'd say that they were further down. And there was a variance even um, in themselves, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, in the paper, I talk about um, this um, variable between work-life balance and work-life integration, and that's the reason um, that I put that um, variable in the paper because um, people were having really interesting conversations with other people and with themselves about how work-focused or leisure-focused they were. Um, they were certainly going to places like Thailand to experience life, um, to immerse themselves in local cultures. Um, one of the really interesting things that I started to observe is that digital nomad business owners often didn't have very much time for leisure. Um, and if um, a freelancer or something got a lot of contracts, um, they would focus on work instead of the other parts of their life. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting point, especially because in one of your recent podcasts, you said that uh, digital nomads are actually trying to work less uh, while uh, you know becoming uh, or doing this lifestyle. And uh, what I think and what I argue also in one of my papers is that work is a very important component when we talk about digital nomads because it's also a differentiated factor from other lifestyles like neo-nomads or flashbacking that people traveling for maybe searching spiritual self and do not really uh, have uh, any work to complete either as freelancer or as a salaried person. So... Um, yeah, that's, I think, an important uh, 
point in here and something that you also had in the self-identification graph that Ford is um, is there and is present in digital and nomadic lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, if you think of the digital aspects um, of the term digital nomad, that's really um, predominantly about work because it's um, untethering um, something that used to happen in an office and people used to commute to. Um, digital nomads sometimes use uh, the term work isn't a place that I go to. Um, but um, if you're talking about categories of digital nomad, nomads, I think it is important to think about work as um, a, you know the primary um, area that you categorize them. I mean, in the paper that I just published, um, and wh where I was talking about the definition and, uh, and the different categories, it was the World Leisure Journal. Um, and so I did comment that it was uh, a little bit strange that these um, categories were, were, were work-focused. This is why I think this conversation around work-life balance, um, which varies, um, digital nomads have different um, attitudes to work-life balance. So just to give you an example, there's a prominent digital nomad and journalist and writer called Lauren Rezavi, um, and I interviewed her for my paper um, and I asked her a question um, about something that she wrote in her personal blog where she said, um, I reject the notion of work-life balance. I believe in work-life um, integration. Um, and in the conversations that I had with her, she said, I love my work. I don't really want to um, distinguish between my work and other parts of my life. Um, but what's interesting, earlier on in my research, I did have lots of conversations about work-life balance with digital nomads, particularly people that were, were rejecting um, the traditional world of work. They were um, trying to escape things like commuting. Um, they were rejecting the idea of the nine to five and the office. Um, and they were, you know, um, trying to do this by uh, exercising their right to travel and move using digital technologies. So they were going to places like Chiang Mai to try and have more time for leisure. That worked out really well for some people. So. Um, in the comment um, that you mentioned where I said that some digital nomads are very focused on leisure, that is um, the aspiration for a lot of freelance digital nomads. Um, and that's why they go to places like Thailand, um, where they go to cities like Chiang Mai. Um, the reality is that sometimes um, digital nomad business owners end up working very long hours. So they're oftentimes working when they're the office having fun. So you would normally even do that, even shall we to Chamai or any other place? Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, so sometimes one of the things that I did see um, in my research is that um, if people were overworking in, you know, places which were really beautiful and everybody else was going out and having a really great time, um, that could have a negative effect sometimes on people's uh, mental health. Um, some of my um, nomad participants um, talked about that contributing um, to burnout that, and having to move from location to location. Um, so it's just an interesting tension. It's not always the case that, you know, this is, you know, a, a negative experience for digital nomads, but it's something that is important for researchers, and I think it's important for nomads themselves to be aware of. Absolutely. So, Dave, why is it important to have categories? Yeah, um, so um, if we kind of like think of the term um, digital nomad and remote worker, you gave the example of um, the person in the co-working space in Gran Canaria that just called 
um, everybody remote workers. And of course, that's absolutely fine. Um, these categories don't really matter um, too much. But um, I think that um, digital nomads are quite specific and quite special and quite unique. And they are a, they're, they're a subcategory of remote worker. Um, and they were working remotely in very novel and interesting ways um, before the pandemic. Um, and the, the category and the distinction is important that people are going to try and count them. Um, so just to give you an example, I was called in to give some expert um, evidence um, for the UK Treasury. Um, and they were trying to work out, um, you know, what a digital nomad was, what a cross-border worker was, what a, a remote worker was. Because they wanted to understand um, how they would make them pay their taxes. <laughs> um, so um, I spent a really interesting afternoon um, with them and, and realized that they didn't understand that some people were wanting to travel and work outside of their own country. Um, and um, they didn't know, um, you know how they should tax them. Um, and I think that um, when we get into conversations with things like digital nomad visas, that we have a level playing field when we're de designing um, these visas. Um, and in order to do that, they need a baseline definition. Um, of course, all of these people are remote workers, but um, if we're going to um, understand how many digital nomads they are and, and how many digital nomads are going to Lisbon, which is a place that's already under pressure from over-tourism, um, it's not all the fault of digital nomads. They're sometimes blamed um, for um, their impacts on things like um, the cost of living and um, housing costs. Um, but if we're going to count them, we need to understand what they are. Um, and um, in the paper, I tried to come up with something that was very easy to understand and very concrete. Um, and my hope would be that um, um, organizations um, and countries might use some kind of universal definition. It doesn't have to be mine, but um, you know, so that we can confidently say there are so many digital nomads, um, you know, currently coming from Europe or coming from different European countries. Um, all of the data um, at the moment is all from America, and that's um, all, all of the work of NBO. That's the only service yeah. we currently can refer to to actually give some estimation of the numbers yeah. of still nomads. Yeah. And well, here we come to well, another question that I have. Uh, is about uh, you. You have mentioned uh, that nomads uh, prefer traveling and they reject in the traditional office, but they still go to co-workings even they travel to Chiang Mai or to Bali and they end up going uh, to these co-working spaces because they cater for social needs of digital nomads. But uh, my question about co-working spaces um, uh, is related to the uh, different types of co-workings. There are now different types as uh, co-working spaces that are individual or individualistic co-working spaces that singular or individuals go and you know work there then we have community-based uh, co-working spaces and uh, corporational uh, or corporate uh, co-working spaces that are created for groups of professionals from the same uh, company for example however i think um our co-location as a phenomenon has become even more sophisticated as now we have startup co-working spaces, uh, co-working spaces that have cryptocurrency specialists or blockchain uh, specialists. And I know that you've been in the field and uh, you've seen uh, some examples. So could you share some insights about these 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the really interesting thing that I first um, wrote about and I first noticed in my research, which really confused me, was why would digital nomads travel, you know, 6,000 miles um, around the world um, and then go to a co-working space, which is essentially, in some respects, just uh, another serviced um, office. And I found that a little bit paradoxical. Um, what I found out um, is that digital nomads oftentimes wouldn't go to places like Chiang Mai and go straight to a co-working space. They, they would rent a serviced apartment or they'd rent an Airbnb and they'll be working at home. And then the end of the working day would come and they would still be at home and there was nothing to kind of structure or, or, or end the working day. Um, and I heard a lot of those stories um, in my early research um, about that being a problem, just being inside these four walls um, all, all of the time um, and just sometimes forgetting not to work, mm -hmm. um, which I guess defeats um, um, the whole uh, object. So um, co-working spaces um, are sometimes, um, I'm talking about the early days here, I sometimes talked about community spaces, but one of the things that I found in my research was that digital nomads were going to co-working spaces just as a way to break up the day and to make a division between, you know, sort of like being at home in my Airbnb. Um, they do a little commute to the co-working space. Um, they work there. Um, and one of the things that was very common that cropped up um, in my research was they just liked being around other people that were working. Um, that came up more than the community aspect because they had their work to do. They didn't really have that much time um, to socialize it, but they um, talked about the co-working space being a little bit like a university library. You've got that kind of feeling of industrious work um, happening and um, you don't go to a co-working space and just start walk over to someone's desk and start talking to them. I mean, that is, quite taboo. Somebody might be communicating to somebody in a different time zone, um, or they might be doing deep work or focus work. Um, so the the dynamics and the etiquette in co-working spaces, which is a feature of quite a lot of my early research, I think is really, really interesting. Uh, the co-working spaces that I went to in 2015, 2016, um, were very much um, the individual freelancer co-working spaces so you'd have computer coders you'd have travel writers you'd have bloggers you'd have bloggers um you know people working on their own um specific um, projects and clients uh, and sometimes they have nothing in common um with each other um and the first co-working space that i went to was tom space neiman um which was the first co-working space um in chan mori there are a lot more now <laughs> and as you just touched on um, there are different types of co-working space. So I've just been back to Chiang Mai. I was in the field um, over November, December, January, and there were lots of different types of co-working spaces. There were, um, now they've um, legalized marijuana um, in Thailand. There were weed co-working spaces, marijuana co-working spaces. Um, I spent some time doing some research in a co-working space called Yellow, and that was cryptocurrency uh, and Web3 focused. And one of the things that I noticed when I spent time there was that people were working in groups, whereas I was in um, um, Hunt Space in Neiman, and people were all working individually. When I was there this time, 
um, but there was a lot more um, collaboration. And some people are actually traveling to Thailand and working in co-working spaces as teams. Um, and that was something that I didn't see um, so much before in 2015, 2016. Um, so that's a specific co-working space that has, um, you know, a focus on cryptocurrency and Web3. Um, there was another co-working space that I was working out um, of called Freebird Cafe, and that was an NGO, and the profits for that co-working space uh, were going to support local community projects. So we're seeing some really interesting developments. Um, and as I always say, digital nomads are not a homogenous group. Um, so these different spaces are catering for, you know, different types of digital nomads, you know, some that want to be um, more um, socially um, connected um, and be um, connected to projects which are, are giving back to the local communities. Um, and then you have crypto digital nomads. So, you know, there are other categories that you can talk of, just getting back to my original uh, um, discussion about the categories. But um, the co-working space, I think, is the is the most visible way that you can see that digital nomads um, are, you know, entering and changing um, an area. Yeah, I find it fascinating that it's not just individuals and individual professionals who um, starting this lifestyle, but also group of professionals, as you mentioned, that groups are working together and traveling together and working in the co-working spaces somewhere in Chiang Mai or in other places. So uh, it's interesting to see uh, this dynamic and thank you for working us through these um, developments and through insights of your research today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to share it with you. Thank you for listening. Check out Academy Experience elsewhere.